We're going to begin a new series today because this is where the church is today. We need to wake up to some things. An alarm has to go off to awaken us to certain things. And so as we begin this series, I want to put that, the, the, the image up. This is so good. This is a great picture of where so many people are. This man has been walking along, and he's on the edge, but he's blindfolded and doesn't know that he's, the next step he's taking is not on the solid rock he's been walking on, but he's stepping out into something, and what he's stepping out into is eternity. And what God wants to awaken us to, that's where all of us are this morning. Everyone in this room, whether you're in Christ or not in Christ, we're in that position. And the question is, this man has a blindfold on. He doesn't realize that he's about to step into eternity. And this is where so much of the church is. We're walking along and not realizing that my next step in life, my next breath, the next beating of my heart may leave this realm that I think is solid and I may step any moment into eternity. And the question is, are we ready? This is important to us, not just for our own lives, but to be awakened and realize every day we're among, everyone we're among is in that same position. Any moment, without any planning, without any notice, they're going to step at some point into eternity. And one thing we all have in common, one of the wonderful things about what God's done in this church is we have people from many different nationalities, many different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic strata, but we have one thing in common. Every one of us is going to hit that point where we step into eternity. And so we're going to take this, we'll begin a series, and it won't be that long, I don't believe, to help awaken us to what this means. We live every day and every moment in that spot on the edge of eternity. My friend Jim Dumont, this pastor, went out for a walk. He's younger than I am. He's in good health as far as we know. He went out for a walk and he's on the edge of it right now. We've had people that have come to church here, young people. And the next day we had a gentleman on the way home, way to work on a motorcycle. We don't know what happened. He went off the road. And at a young age, suddenly he's not in this realm anymore. And we live and work around people every day that at some point, and it may be today, are going to step in to eternity. So what's an edge? The purpose for this is to desensitize us to this, awaken us to this. So what is an edge? What is an edge? I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and one of the definitions is that it's a point near the beginning. By the way, these notes are available on the website. There'll be something I'm going to cover later on where you may want to look at them later on. The dictionary, Merriam-Webster's dictionary says, it's the point near the beginning or the end of something. So this edge is the point at the end of something, which is this life, and the beginning of a life in eternity. It's the verge or the brink of something. It's a dividing line. 
so that when you cross it, you leave one place and you enter in to another. So the edge of eternity is the edge at that point when we leave this life as we know it and we step into another realm of life, another realm of existence, and that begins. So there will come a time, and we don't like to face this, there will come a time when this, our life here will end. And we will step across that edge, that brink, into something entirely new and entirely different for us. And so we need to be aware and live aware of that. We live our entire life on this side of that edge or brink. But on the other side is an eternity either in heaven or in hell. The most important thing that will ever happen to us in this life, the most important thing that will ever happen to us in this life is when we step beyond that veil. And we spend so little time thinking about it, praying about it, or preparing for it. We work and live among people that are also on that brink. And in our interactions with them and our relationships with them, we focus on so many other things other than this reality. And why is that? Well, let's look for a moment at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, most of the time this chapter is looked at because it follows talking about marriage. But before Paul gets into marriage and the relationship between Christ and the church, he has a message here. And he tells us, we're not going to go back and look, but starting in verse 8, he's reminding us who we are. We are children of the light. Now in the Bible, light represents truth. Walking in truth. Walking in the light. And I've used this example many times. But my office is on this side and the rest of the offices are on this side. That means I regularly, every day I'm in here, walk through here. Now I could walk out through the foyer, but it's longer. So I walk through here. And I've done it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And so I know basically where everything is. But the problem is I only know basically where everything is. So all, out of wisdom... There's a walk-in light over there that I touch and it brings some of the light on in here. I do that because I used to think I knew so much I could walk through here without turning the light on until one day I ran into a, into a, a lift we use here for putting the lights on and I didn't see it and walked right into it. And my shins began to talk to me and tell me, John, you're not so smart today. You're proud. You think you know what's in here. You think because you've been here through here so many times, you know what's in here now. You should have turned the light on because the light allows you to see what's really here and what the truth is. So Paul has just finished telling them, reminding them, you are children of the light, not of darkness. So now he's going to move from that into these verses we're going to look at. We're going to start in verse 14. The therefore, that's what the therefore was. He says, awake. This is an alarm going off. Awake you who sleep. Now remember in a sleep, as I started by saying, in a sleep when you're dreaming, you think that's real. 
I had a wonderful dream last night. I've, I can't pull a lot of it back, but it was one of those dreams. It was just great. You know, revisiting some old things, and it was so real to me until I woke up and realized all that reality that I thought I had went the moment my eyes opened and I faced the reality of what was really there. It was time to get up and get ready for church. And so, Paul's saying here, therefore, awake you who sleep. He's not talking about people that sleep late to go to work. He's talking about a sleepiness. A sleepiness. As some of you go through on Sunday morning in the message. (laughs) Arise from the dead. That's another symbol for being out of it. And Christ will give you light will give you truth. See, then, that you walk circumspectly. Let me take that word apart. There's two, syllab- there's two parts to that. Circum, which ref- is, it comes from a Greek word, which means to go around something, and speckly, which is my spectacles, which is to see. What this word means is to be looking, all aware of what's going on, around you. When I was taught to drive, I was taught to drive not just being aware of what's in front of me, but being aware of what's behind me and what's on either side. If you've ever been to Disney World, there's a several, several things they have at Epcot where they show, have these 360 movies. Have you ever been, anybody ever been to those? And you stand in the middle and there's, there, there's, there's something going on all around you. It's all part of the same story, but you can look all around you and you can look all around you. The word circumspectly means to be aware of whatever's going on around you. To be aware. And I was meditating on this yesterday. I was reminded of a story, uh, of an event in my life. When, as you, I've told the story before, of that, that my wife was, when I met her, she was going to school in Cincinnati, nursing school in Cincinnati, and I was a, a, in college in upstate New York, and it was an eight-hour drive. Forget stopping for gas. It was eight hours driving. And uh, when I began to go out there, my, one of my fraternity brothers was engaged to her roommate. But somewhere during our senior year, they got married. So I started making these trips alone. And, and, and I would take, she had a curfew. Some people are old enough to remember what curfews were in school. She had a curfew. She had to be back there at midnight. And we would, I would pick her up when I got down there Friday. We'd go to her parents' house. And then I would take her back in time for midnight and leave her, literally to the stroke of midnight, okay? And then I'd get in my car and I would drive eight hours back through Columbus, Cleveland, Erie, Buffalo, and Rochester, which are beautiful in the spring, but I drove them in the winter. Young and in love. And she was worth the trip. But I remember one time, see, when you're young, you think you can do anything. I didn't think it was crazy to get in the car after, you know, by the way, I drove eight hours down on Friday. And I got a philosophy class at 8 o'clock in the morning. I got a May there for her. So I'm driving along, and my biggest challenge was to stay awake. And I remember so vividly this one scene, this one situation. I was just south of, of Columbus. 
and I'm driving along and I'm alone on the highway just cruising along and it's probably two in the morning and I'm driving along and there's nothing around me and suddenly I go like this because I hear a noise and when I open my, when I open my eyes I guess there's a semi in front of me there's a semi to my left and a semi behind me and I have no idea where they came from I had not been circumspect I had dozed a little bit and because of that I was not aware of the dangers that were around me well the, the rush of adrenaline from that kept me on alert somewhere through Erie <laughs> so Paul is saying see then because of the darkness that's around us Christians, you need to walk aware, circumspectly, alert to where you are. You're walking on the edge of eternity. And not as fools, but be wise. Verse 16. How? Redeeming the time. The word to redeem means to buy back. The one other thing we all have in common is we've got 24 hours a day. I don't care if you're a CEO of some major corporation or you're out of work. You still have 24 hours in a day. I don't care if you're Bill Gates and have all the money in the world or you're living on the street. You still have 24 hours a day. And what we do with them is critical. So we're here to redeem the time because the days are evil. I don't think that takes much explanation. Verse 17. Well, is that all I gave you? Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be... Okay. Nope, that's all I gave you. Very good. That's fine. Okay. Now let's go to Isaiah 40 and let's look at why. This is quoted by Peter in the first letter that Peter has wrote for the Bible. But Isaiah 40 is an interesting section of Scripture because Israel has been, is about to go into, into captivity and, and Isaiah has just said some pretty hard things. And he starts this chapter with words like, Comfort my people. Comfort my people. One of the reasons we're going to see as we get into this series, one of the reasons to be awake to eternity is there are many places in the Bible where it says, your awareness of eternity to a Christian gives us comfort. Amen. Three of us it gave comfort too. Okay? Why? Cause, be, because why? Have, have, you ever get, have, you, have you come to the place yet where you're disgusted with this world? Oh, you haven't been out in it long. The darkness that's in the world right now, the, uh, the garbage that's in this world right now, everywhere you turn. And our hope is this isn't everything. And there's a comfort where to take place in this. And so Isaiah is speaking, God speaking through him says, comfort my people with these words. And then he goes on to say that I'm sending one who will cry out in the wilderness, make way, the, the way for the Lord. This is referring to John the Baptist the one that's going to go before the Messiah that's going to come. And then he says, this is the message that he's going to speak. So we'll pick up here in verse 6. The voice of the Lord will cry, say, said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? This is what he's been told to say. What am I supposed to say to the people? And this is what I'm supposed to cry out. All flesh is grass. 
And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. All flesh, this life, is like the grass or the flowers of the field. This is a great time of year for, for this image. Because this is a time of year when, you know, when springtime comes and the, the grass turns green and, and it's beautiful and the flowers begin to come out. It's such a wonderful sense of renewal and of hope. But we hit this time of year when the grass starts turning brown and the flowers begin to droop. In a staff meeting this week, or one of the meetings I had this week, we're going over the schedule and I went, wait a minute, Debbie said it. Tomorrow's October 1st. <laughs> Where did it go? Am I the only one that think this summer went... This year... I remember standing here having communion with so many of you here as we ushered in the new year. My wife and I were sitting on the back, our back deck because we haven't been able to sit there with the weather lately and remembering when our son and daughter-in-law came to visit us, realizing it was four months ago and that was just June. The flowers that I worked hard to water and everything like that, they're starting to... because they don't last forever. They're beautiful. They're God's creation but it withers and goes. Now we know that about nature, but he's making a point here. All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Its loveliness is temporary. Verse 7. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows about Surely the people are grass. The next verse. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, saying when the, when the forerunner comes before the Messiah, He's going to remind us that our life is like... The Bible calls it a hand's breath. In September, I turned 73. I don't feel 73. A lot of times I don't act 73. And I'm glad I don't. But the reality is, when I look at my birth certificate, I'm 73 plus now, all right? I don't know where it went. In July, we celebrated 51 years of marriage. I still remember driving a car in south of Columbus when those tractor trailers... It's still rem- I can remember those things. They're so clear to me. Where did it go? Where did it go? Then you project forward... There's far more of my life here behind me than there is ahead of me. So the reality is, is the things that we build so much of our energy and time and put so much of our heart into are... And the things that are eternal, the things that are eternal, we give very little attention to. So what does that mean? Well, we'll talk more about that as we get further into the series. But what does that mean? Well, what are the eternal things in our life? Our time with God is sowing into eternity. Our worship, our, our prayer time is sowing into God. Feeding on God's Word is, is building something in us because those things will last. Our giving, the Bible says, it goes before us into heaven. Our prayers are collected in a bowl. Now, whether that's literally true or not, I don't know. But Revelation says, your prayers are all before God. Those are eternal things we do. 
But when the pressure gets on in this life, what are the things we let go of first? The things that don't seem that important to us, and they're all the eternal things. Our prayer life, our time in God's Word, our church, coming to church. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here this morning because you're here. But when the pressure gets on in people's lives, this is why statistics tell us today that people that consider themselves faithful Christians come once or twice a month, and they consider that faithful. Because there's so many distractions in life, so many pressures in life, that we let go of the things that build eternal things and set up eternal things in our life and for those around us. Instead, we spend our lives and our time and our money on things that are only a hand's breath. Why is this so vital? God intends us to wake up for a wake-up call for true followers of Christ so that He can comfort us. 1 Corinthians 15. John, I was here this morning. This one verse here. Paul's talking about the resurrection. Verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If our hope in Christ is only in this life, then we are of most men to be pitied. Our hope is not in this life, even in Christ. And if that's where we've set our hope, then we are of most men to be pitied. This is an alert that a day is coming. There's also, I'm talking about for Christians now. So there's a hope. We're going to look at this eternity as a hope that we have as Christians. But it's also a wake-up call because just because you're going to heaven isn't everything. Pastor Sam Smith used to talk about it as a fire insurance policy. All some people are looking for a fire insurance policy that I don't go to hell. But there's so much more. We're going to look at this. You're going to spend eternity there. And and eternity will begin with, I made it. Some of us with, well, there's still smoke coming on our shirt tails. But I made it. All right, that may last you five minutes. And now what's in front of us is an eternity to live with what we did with our life as Christians here. So it's not just whether we make it or not, but what happens next. The Bible tells us some things about it. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. But it tells, first of all, there will be a time when we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. Non-believers appear before the great white throne of God for the second death. But Christians appear before what's called the bima in Greek. It's a judgment seat. It's the seat that was used, I don't want to get too off on this, but it was the seat that was used at the Olympic Games for the whoever the presiding official was to issue the rewards for those that won their races. So it's a time when we will stand before Christ and we will give an account of, of what we did with what He called us to do. And this is why we try to give you as many opportunities as we can to serve. 
and are unashamed about pleading with you to serve, not so much because we need your help, because you need to do what God's called you to do, because you will stand before Christ and give an account with what God's called you to do. And the account isn't how successful you were, the account is were you faithful to do it. The example Jesus gives is of, of, the, of, the, of the talents, and we'll talk about that probably. And he says, to those that, that did what they were supposed to do, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. What motivates me when I don't want to come in here? What motivates me when I've got to face issues I don't want to face? What motivates me to do things I don't want to do is because I keep in mind there's coming a day when I stand before my Lord and I want to hear those words. I had a young man earlier this year come and sit down and talk with me. I really appreciated it. Wanted to know my heart's about some things, somebody in this church, and wanted to know what I thought about some things, why we did some things and why we didn't do other things. I didn't mind answering those questions. Some of the things I didn't have an answer for. And finally he said to me, I'm young and you're not as young. <laughs> what advice would you give me for my life? And I thought about it for a moment and I said, this has been my approach. Maybe it's the lawyer in me, I don't know. I said, I look at what's the end result I need to have? What's the end goal? And then I order my life so that I'll come to that place and I'll have the results I wanted. And I said, for me, that end goal is the day I stand before Jesus. And he looks at my life and says, what have you done? What did you do with what I gave you to do? With your talent, your ability, with the opportunities and the call that I gave to you to do. And the goal of my life is to hear from Him. I don't care about gold or silver. See, in heaven, those things are they're paving materials. But what's precious beyond belief is His approval. To hear, well done. Instead of, as I heard one preacher say, instead of, Jesus says, well... You're done. <laughs> Every one of us, within the sound of my voice, every one of us that's in Christ is going to face that moment. It's not something to be afraid of because He is love, but He is also truth. First Corinthians 3 talks about that, that when we stand before Him, it's like a fire that will burn away the chaff. All the things we build into our life that were not for Him and were not His will will get burned away and what's left is what will remain. I don't believe Jesus stands there with a holy blowtorch. I think it's the penetrating truth of His eyes. To stand before absolute truth, the only thing we can present is truth. And every one of us will stand at that point. And we live our lives every day totally oblivious to that. We make decisions about what's important and what's not important without ever taking that into consideration 
And the things we take into consideration, the things we spend our life on, the things we can worry about and spend all our time about, is just going to be... And we haven't given the time and the thought and the prayer and the faith into what is eternal. That's for a Christian. That's for a Christian. So it's a hope to us. It's also a warning that we need to be ready for giving an account. We continually give you opportunities to get involved. This is why we're trying to change the focus of a church from being inward to what am I getting out of this into outward, why am I here? Why has God placed me here? Why has God placed this church here? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do as a church? One of the things we want to do going forward is make that clear and clear and clear. We don't exist for us to get fat here on the Word. We exist to feed on the Lord and on His presence, on one another's strength, so that we can go out into a dying world that's on the edge of an eternity that's not good. It's an alert to be aware that every person around us is on the edge of eternity. Most of the people we live around are walking with their eyes blindfolded. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. He blinds their eyes. There's a blinder over their eyes. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize that they're walking. Lester Summerall, a great evangelist, you know, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, even into the 70s, started a revival. God used him to start a revival in the Philippines and other places. A little, about, about that high, about a firecracker. He told a story I'll never forget because he was just kind of an average preacher and doing things. And then one night he had a vision. And the vision he saw was men, probably just people, lined up one after another, taking a step forward like this. One after another, taking a step forward like this. And he looked at the end, and what happened at the end is the last person at the end would step off over a cliff into a bottomless pit. And the person behind them didn't know, they just stepped up next and stepped off. And God showed him, that's the people around you. They're walking one step at a time over a cliff into eternity in hell. And it changed his life. It changed his entire focus of everything that he did. We need to awake to a sense of urgency. Now, why is this so hard? Well, (laughs) eternity is something that's kind of hard to wrap our mind around. First of all, eternity means there's no beginning and end. But everything we know in this life has a beginning and has an end. The time between them may be short, it may be long, and we always compare things to our own life. (laughs) One of the first questions that goes in my mind when I find out somebody's passed away is, how old were they? Like, what does it matter? I mean, I understand there's some reasons behind it. You know, we try to compare. 
Because one of the things I go, realize I go through is, well, if they were older, that's okay, because that's kind of expected. But if they're younger, then, oh my goodness, I'm living on borrowed. I realized the other day that the Bible promises three score and ten. That's 70 years. I'm on borrowed time. <laughs> I'm three years on borrowed time. I'm three years beyond the scriptural promise. Huh. <laughs> Eternity means without a beginning or end. And everything we've known in our entire life, or ever will know in this life, has a beginning and has an end. So we have no frame of reference to try to understand things. And that's how we do understand. We try to understand things by fitting it into some frame of reference, something we're familiar with. But something like eternity, it's like there's a, there's a phrase in Ephesians 3 where Paul is telling the Ephesian church what his prayer for them was. And, and, and I, was, I was praying this today. He said, that you might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So that you might know something that's beyond your ability to know. Well, we'll talk in a minute about how that, how that can happen. Our minds can't grasp eternity based on experience because it's endless. I was thinking yesterday, until Columbus, in 1492, until Columbus sailed for what he thought was the Indies, they thought the world was flat. I heard somewhere the other day that that teaching's out there again. Some people believe the world was flat. I don't know who told me that. There are people teaching that out there. We're living in a world of insanity. <laughs> so they based that because that's all they could see. They couldn't see beyond the horizon. Because the earth is not flat, the horizon is the end of what you can see. But to assume that what you can see is all of reality is a height of presumption and arrogance. And we do it all the time. So what they discovered is the world's not flat, it's round. But they couldn't see that because they were only blocked by the horizon. I looked up some sermons, old sermons, about eternity. There's one by George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists this country's ever known. But the one I want to use, I want to read you a quote. And if you get the notes online, this quote is in there. I want to read a quote from a, a sermon by John Wesley, one of the great Methodist, founder of the Methodist movement, and one of the great evangelists in Europe. This is what he wrote in a section on his sermon on, on eternity. And he's talking about the, you know, the, how difficult it is to see eternity. Yet this unspeakable folly, this unalterable madness of preferring present things to eternal is the disease of every man born into the world while in his natural state. For such is the constitution of our nature... That is, the eye sees only such a portion of space at once. So the mind sees only such a portion of space, of time at once. As all the space that lies beyond the compass is invisible to the mind, so that we do not perceive either space or time which is at a distance from us. The eye sees distinctly the space that's near us with the objects which it contains. 
In the same manner, the mind sees distinctly those objects which are within such distance of time. The eye does not see the beauties of China because they're too great a distance. Now, this was before the Internet, of course. There is too great a space between us and them. Therefore, we're not affected by them. Did you ever, ever, you know, one of the things that these world relief organizations will do to try to, to, to move us to compassion to give is you'll show us pictures of children starving in Africa or some other nation. And the problem is, I know what they're trying to do, but it's hard for us to connect with that and relate to that. Sometimes it's hard to pray for foreign nations because I, I can see a picture, I can see it on the globe, I can see it on my internet, but I don't have any connection with it. But like when I can pray for like Jim Dumont, that pastor, I know him. I've, I, can, I can see him. I know what his face looks like. So I can envision him, I can relate to him. But people in other parts of the world, unless the Spirit of God does something, we'll talk about that in a minute, it's very hard to connect with. And this is, this is what John Wesley is saying here. We're not at all affected by them because they're so distant from us on this account that they appear to us as nothing, just as if they had no existence. Meantime, we're wholly taken up with present things, whether in time or space, and things appear less and less as they're more and more distant from us, either in one respect or another. And so it must be. Such, Listen carefully. Such is the constitution of our nature. It's what the natural human being's like. Until nature is changed by Almighty God's grace. But this is no manner of excuse for those who continue in their natural blindness into the future because a remedy for it is provided which is found by all that seek it. Yes, it's freely given to all that sincerely ask for it. We'll talk about that next week. So, what are we to do? What are we to do? To re- re- how, do we, how do we get our minds alerted by this reality that tomorrow, today, and we're not to fear, we're going to talk about that. The whole purpose of today's message is just to alert us. It's an alarm clock going off to try to awaken us out of our sleep, the sleepiness. And Satan is the Sandman. He loves to come... Remember, anybody... Am I the only one that knows about the Sandman? Are we, am I aging? Am I, am I, all right. the, 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 the myth used to be that for children to go to sleep, the salmon had to sprinkle sleeping dust in their eyes. Okay. Well, Satan's very good at that. He's very good at lulling us to sleep. The second chapter of Hebrews talks about, you know, wake up because it's so easy to drift away from the things we believe. It, he didn't say you'll suddenly get jerked out of it. It's the slow... Drifting away. I got for my grandson for Christmas uh, one of these drones, okay? And, and um, uh, so, you know, he brought it over to my house. That was a mistake. Because <laughs> Papa's had more fun with it, I think, than my grandson has. And so I got him another one. And one of the things I'll do is take it out there and try to, to, to get it to stand still. Because you can get it off the ground. I was realizing yesterday, why, why do I like this? It gives me a sense of power over something. See, when you're a pastor, you have no power. But I can make this thing go where I want it to go sometimes. And you've got to get it to... When they teach you to, uh, they teach you to control it, it's to first of all get it to stay still and not move. 
And that can be challenging. You, take, you can't take your eyes off it for long, especially if it's windy at all. So it never stays right where you're supposed to. It's always drifting somewhere, and you have to make adjustments. That's true for pilots. They'll set a course, but that course is what they intend to do, but they have to make adjustments to their course because the wind will blow them off or now they've got electronic stuff that keeps them on now but when you're flying visually you know you've got to stay you've got to keep your eye on the compass the heading because with the wind factor you can just kind of get distracted the car I have and I guess a lot of them have it now <laughs> the first time I was driving it on a highway and I looked to my wife and said something next thing you know the steering wheel's doing this because I started to wander, I wasn't paying attention. I started to wander over the center line, and now because it knows that I can do that, it now tugs at me and, and tries to, John, you, you, want to do, you really want to go over there? And pulls me back. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's telling me I wasn't paying attention. But I'm glad because there have been times it say, so we need something. Now, there's another setting on my car where instead of doing this, it vibrates in your seat. <laughs> I decided it was less embarrassing for the wheel to do this so that's what this message is about is to awaken us wait a minute are we drifting around where are we and to awaken because the reality is every one of us in any moment may step off what we think is solid into eternity and the question is are you stepping off with your eyes blinded or do you see where you're going? And do you see what's ahead? So what do we do? Well, John Wesley says, and he's right, grace, it's grace that awakens us to the Word. This is God's grace this morning. God's not angry at us. This is God's grace. I regularly, in my prayer time, say, Lord, I don't want to be surprised on that day. If there's anything you need to deal with me about, I'd rather do it now when I can make it a correction and adjustment than find out then when it's too late. There's scripture for that because because in the in the, in the in the book of Revelation, the beginning, Jesus dictates a letter, a different letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. And he tells each of them something different. He tells them, I know your works. Jesus knows our works. He knows our personal works. He knows the works of this church. He knows them. He knows our motives. And He tells them, these are the good things that you've done, and these are the things you've not done right. And He says, you need to correct the things you've not done right. And He says, I do this because I love you. I correct you because I love you. So the Lord is saying to us this morning, it's time for us to wake up. Wake up to where we are. We're not playing games. We're not playing, in a, you, know, you know, we get so caught up in sports and things like that. That's not reality. And now we have reality TV. It's not reality. There are cameras filming it. <laughs> I don't want to go there. So what do we do? It's the grace of God that, in His Word, that wakes us up and gets into our hearts with the Holy Spirit. John 16. Jesus gave these, these words to His disciples. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. Well, He did depart, so He has sent Him. Verse 8. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. He will, the word convict means convince. His job is to convince the world of their sin, that they need a Savior. And of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9. Of sin because they don't believe in me. That's the sin that sends people to hell. They reject Christ. And he will convict them of that. Verse 10. And of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Next verse. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Next verse. I still have many, say to things, many more things to say to them, but you cannot bear them now. Next verse. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you, He will tell you, He will tell you, He will tell you, He will tell you things to come. Not the lottery number this week. Not who's going to win the daily double horse race. But He will tell you things to come. He will awaken you and alert you to what is coming so you can be ready. So you can be ready. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. One of my favorite scriptures. Verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, because we're blinded, Ear is not heard because our ears are stopped. Nor is it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. I know He's talking about here, but He's talking about eternity. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So what are, we, what are you saying to me, Pastor? I'm saying for a Christian, how do we get awakened? How do we appreciate? How do we wrap our mind and begin to appreciate what this eternity is? We can't do it on our own. Wesley said, the natural mind, the natural man cannot grasp eternity. Then how does it get through to us? By the Spirit of the living God. This is one of the ways to pray for your lost family and pray for your friends and that God would, God would open the eyes of their understanding. Many times we're trying to beat them over the head and get them to see something they're blind to. They can't see it. This is something the Spirit of God, He'll use your words, He may use your touch or your love, but He has to break through to them, but He's the one that has to break through to us too. The difference is we have the resources to help Him do that. And that's the Word of God and prayer. It's to take the Word of God. So the la- I'm going to end with this. Wesley says that the way we become awake of these things is by the Spirit of God, and the way he put it is by thinking much on these things. The word that we use is to meditate. Think more about eternity than we do. I begin my day in eternity. I begin my day pulling aside and spending time with the Lord and talking to Him about eternal things. Talking to Him. And it gets my eyes on an eternal being and gets my eyes off myself and the issues of this day. Many of you are bogged down with worry. Worry comes from circumstances of this world. 
And the Bible gives us answers. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the things you need will be added unto you. We'll talk about this as, as we go on. I want to end with this. As we go forward with this series, we're going to see what it is we need to do, both for ourselves to be prepared for that day we step off, and for those around you. So close your eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you to meditate on this for a moment. We're going to do this together. Think about your normal day. Maybe the rest of today. Maybe your plans for today. And ask yourself this question. Do I live every day more aware of the eternity that lies around me? Or am I more asleep by the busyness of the world? Father, we're going to take a moment right now and together we're just going to meditate on the eternity that faces each one of us. Not to be afraid if we're in Christ. Not to be afraid if we're in Christ. But realize there's so much more than whether we make it to heaven or not. It's what are we going to do? What's it going to be like for us? Are we ready to stand before you? and to give an account. Thank you for your grace, Father, that will speak to us now and prepare us for then. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that will speak to us now to prepare us for then. So we take a moment right now just to open our hearts. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to us? What do you want to say to us? Open the eyes of our understanding that we can see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus.